I'm Damian Bulwa, Metro Editor at the San Francisco Chronicle. Today on Fifth and Mission, 24 hours of San Francisco homelessness. Recently, the Chronicle sent 36 reporters, photographers, and videographers onto the streets of San Francisco to capture one full day inside the city's homelessness epidemic. We embedded in emergency shelters and emergency rooms. We followed cops, outreach workers, and paramedics. And we shadowed RV dwellers, tent dwellers, and homeless families. The resulting story, published this week at sfchronicle.com and in a special print section, is called One Day, One City, No Relief. My guests today are three reporters who were part of this project. Nanette Asimov, Curtis Alexander, and Evan Cernofsky. They're going to talk about what they saw and what they learned. This episode was done as part of the San Francisco Homeless Project. It's a media collaboration exploring causes and solutions to the problem. All of our coverage can be found at sfchronicle.com homelessness. Nanette Asimov, Curtis Alexander, and Evan Cernofsky, right after this. I'm very excited about today's podcast. In the studio here, we have three reporters, Nanette Asimov, Evan Cernofsky, and Curtis Alexander. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks so much for having us. Happy Thanks, to be here. Damian. The reason you're here is because we did this year's SF Homeless Project in a very different way. We decided to send three dozen reporters and photographers into the streets to kind of give a window into what homelessness looks like over 24 hours in San Francisco. It was June 18th, and you three were among those who who were tasked with going out and sort of witnessing what a day of homelessness looks like. So thank you so much. I want to begin by just asking you guys what you did that day and and what you saw and who you accompanied. Uh, Nanette, why don't you start? Sure. Um, this was one of the more fascinating days that, that I have spent in a long time. And um, the gentleman I followed, uh, Jimmy Wu, in his 20s, um, you know, he's not the person you would think of as the typical homeless person because he's a, he's a veteran. He lives in a van, uh, and there's a community of other homeless van dwellers. And these guys are all veterans, and they go to City College of San Francisco. And they go from their van to the, their classroom to the gym if they want to take a shower. And the reason they do this is because it turns out that, um, and I had no idea about this, but if you are a veteran, you get GI benefits if you want to be a student. And depending on where you live in the country, you get more or less money. San Francisco gets the highest amount of reimbursement from the GI Bill of anywhere in the country. So San Francisco is filled with homeless veterans going to school. And, and they're homeless because it's uh, cheaper to live in your van. Yeah, and they don't want to spend all their GI Bill on the housing, on San Francisco housing. So I got a question here, yeah. Nanette. Are, are these guys, have they looked for housing in the past? Are they interested in finding a place to live in San Francisco? Or are they just trying to make it through college and collect as much money as possible? That's the thing. They want to make it through college, collect as much money as possible. It's a strategy. They're, they're a real community. Um, they know how much it costs to live in an apartment, to rent an apartment in San Francisco, and they don't want to use their, um, you know, you could say their hard-earned money from having been in the war. 
zone um, on this. So we'll get into your day with with Jimmy Wu. Curtis, over to you. Um, Curtis, who did you spend your day with? I spent my day with Terrell Foster and his wife, Diana. They're a lovely couple. They have three super cute kids. And they were a lot like any other Bay Area family, maybe struggling a little bit with the region's high cost of living. Uh, Darrell worked in a grow house in San Francisco's Mission District. He probably didn't make a lot of money, but he made enough to support himself, his family, his three kids, and pay the rent. However, the grow house closed and he lost his job. The family didn't have a lot of savings. Their landlord didn't really cut them any slack. And their situation just sort of spiraled downward. They went from having their own place in Oakland to staying in motels to sleeping in their car to looking for dormitory space in homeless shelters in San Francisco. And that's where I met up with them. I was looking at a two-bedroom in San Francisco, and they wanted, I think it was 3200 a month. And I was like, well, I'm pretty much a two-parent home, only one works, though. And they were like, well, it's not something we really care about. Okay, Evan, you had an interesting assignment. Yeah, so I cover law enforcement in San Francisco, usually. So uh, on this day, I went out with the police and a special unit of the police department called HSOC, which is an acronym for Healthy Streets Operations Center. It's a group of SFPD officers who are specifically dedicated to responding to calls to 311 about homeless encampments around San Francisco. Okay. All right. Well, we'll get into some of the interactions you had um, that were fascinating. Um, So let's kind of get into the day here. Um, Curtis, first, how does the day begin for Darrell and his family? You said they woke up at a shelter. What is the shelter like? They stay at the Hamilton Families Shelter on Golden Gate Avenue in San Francisco's Tenderloin District. Much of the space there is large rooms where families stay. They don't have a lot of privacy. The families are all in one big room. There's little dividers between them. They have beds, their belongings. It's kind of noisy. There's babies crying. There's kids running around. There's people coming and going at all hours. Not the best place probably to raise a family, but it sure beats the alternative of living in the streets. Uh, uh, Darrell and his family have been upgraded recently to their own room higher up in the family shelter. They have a bedroom size space where they have four bunk beds where their three kids, their German shepherd, and the two of them stay. Their belongings are there. Their toys are there. That's where they wake up. That's where they come back after the end of the day. And how does uh, Darrell, I know you've talked to him for a long time. How does he feel about being in the shelter with his family. Well, the one thing he said to me that really stuck out is that his kids constantly come up to him and say, when are we going to go home? And uh, his kids are only eight months old, 18 months old, and and they're three years old. So they don't really understand the larger context of what's going on. I just miss having a routine with my kids. I would miss waking up and watching cartoons or making breakfast or being able to take my dog outside in the front yard. I miss things like that. He feels bad by telling them that, hey, we're not going home. And he's sure working to get the family back on their feet to find a job that will eventually cover the rent and allow them to find their own place. Curtis, how long can they stay there? They're there for three months. Um, They can have that three months extended, but he is on a timeline, so he has to come up with that money quickly. Man, I can't imagine what that would be like. I know you have kids too, but just you see homeless people in general, and if they're out on their own, you're sort of taking care of yourself and doing all you can, but 
having three little kids to take care of must be just unfathomable for for a family like that. Is that weighing on him? What is he expressed a lot of guilt, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, he definitely feels sad about the situation. I mean, they had their own home and now they don't. And uh, he has a lot of pride. He's a smart guy. He knows what's going on. And uh, not being able to provide for his family is something that really keeps him up at night. All right. So, Nanette, tell us how Jimmy Woo's day begins. And, you know, really curious how he how he eats, how he showers, you know, how he does the the things that that most of us take for granted. Well, these vans that the um, veterans live in around City College are truly their homes. Jimmy really likes living in his van. He's lived there for a couple of years now, and he expects to live in for two more. In fact, every morning at breakfast when he eats his Cheerios, he's watching on YouTube van life about other people living in their vans. He gets ideas about how to decorate his own van. And... uh, he, he talks about why he appreciates living in the van. The van, you know, you can travel, custom build it, and you're pretty much right in front of school. So that's pretty convenient. And so on the day that I spent with him, he and two other vans and their uh, people went over to the Home Depot parking lot, and they keep um, equipment, saws and drills and things in their vans, and then they run into the Home Depot to get um, wood and pieces of things to improve their vans. So Jimmy, on the day that I was with him, he built um, some shelving above his the mattress in his van. And he has also, he's an expert in solar panels. So he taught all his fellow homeless people how to add solar panels to their vans. He's got that. He's got a stove. He's got some hot water system he worked up. So it's a little home in there, um, extremely small. And so um, normally, though, uh, he's off for the summer from school, but he's a computer science student. So he'll go back and forth um, from school and do that. And um, he cooked lunch for his his um, fellow friends on the parking lot at Home Depot. They made some sort of big vegetable. He makes, makes make sure that he has vegetables and chicken and that they eat well. So and how do they shower? Uh, in the gym at City College. Sounds like a pretty sweet little situation he's (laughs) got going on. Except it's really hard for them to park, which I'll tell you about. Okay, well, we're getting into that later. Okay, so Evan, you were with the police, and at 9.30 a.m., again, we have reporters and photographers around the city and the shelters and the navigation centers um, with various teams of outreach workers. You're with the police, and at 9.30 a.m., the police run into this man named Adam, correct? Right. So we're out responding to calls all day. There's no shortage of them. Hundreds of calls um, are coming in and they're driving around. And we get one call um, about somebody on 19th and Sanchez streets. This is right by uh, Dolores Park. And pull up and there's a young man with a sleeping bag sitting cross-legged on the sidewalk. And as the officers approach, they have a standard approach where they come up, they let the person know that there's some services available. Maybe there's a bed available at a nearby navigation center. Maybe they want to get the uh, homeless outreach team in there to help them out with some services. And we quickly see that this uh, young man, whose name is Adam, um, is is pretty obviously mentally ill. Um, He's not really making any coherent sentences. He's jabbering to himself. Um, 
He's able to interact with the police, uh, talk to them. He apparently understands what they're saying, but he's he's very clearly not coherent in uh, his, his mental thought process. And one of the things that the officers told me um, once they came up to him and they offered him these services, uh, they pointed out that people like Adam are all over San Francisco, and they're probably one of the biggest challenges they face because he's not doing anything illegal, so there's no real nexus to arrest him or use any kind of law enforcement against him. Um, he's mentally ill, but he doesn't meet the standard that's required um, to place somebody on some kind of an involuntary psychiatric hold, which would be that you know they're they're an obvious threat or danger to themselves or others. He seemed to be perfectly you know, physically fine and healthy. He wasn't threatening anybody. He wasn't threatening himself. So really all they could do is, you know, point out that he couldn't violate the city's sit-lie ordinance. He needed to move along. He couldn't just camp out in front of somebody's home blocking their way in. And they offered him and said, you know what, you can go to the uh, navigation center if you want. And he declined to do that. So unfortunately, they, you know, did what they could. But Adam, they also said, represents so many people in San Francisco. Yeah, I think a lot of people have a question about for people like Adam who seem to not necessarily be totally in charge of of their decision making. They might need medication, but they don't necessarily know it. They might be able to be helped, but they don't understand even the basics. Why can't those people be forced into treatment? is well, sort of a big question right now in San Francisco and what it takes. Right. And, you know, the law as it is, is you can't just force people to do things they don't want to do. They have to meet a pretty high standard of being mentally ill and that they're they're deemed a threat to themselves or somebody else. So Those why are, were the police called in Adam's situation in the first place? As you mentioned, there's lots of people on the streets talking to themselves, acting strangely. Right. So um, he he was like sitting on the sidewalk. He had his sleeping bag with him. He was obviously homeless. He needed some kind of resources. So people, citizens can report folks through 311 or they can call the non-emergency number for the police department. And they get these um, these pins that come up on that 311 app that they have a special um, special uh, app for the, the police department does. So as they're in an area, they can kind of go around and start checking these um, different people off and clearing all these calls, you know, up to 400 calls a day sometimes for homeless people or encampments. So they go, okay, here's one 19th and Sanchez. Let's go check it out. Well, I'm just thinking about how many people there are in San Francisco that just walk by homeless people all day and never get on their phone and get on the app or report these people who may need help. Right. I mean, it must be tens of thousands, I I would imagine. So So these just happen to be the ones that people call about. Yes, exactly. Or that, yeah, I mean, they have a command center, too, at the Department of Emergency Management headquarters, so anybody can call in there. Um, Or, yeah, just report people. Take a picture on your phone and uh, post it to the 311 site. So, Evan, can you tell us if the police did think the person was in such bad shape that they were either a danger to themselves or clearly gravely disabled, they needed immediate help, then what happens? Right. Then they could call um, 
paramedics and then bring this person in for an involuntary psychiatric hold, which we all know is like a 5150 hold where they can hold them for 72 hours at um, San Francisco General Hospital. They go through a review process. Uh, later on, if they're still deemed, um, you know, a danger, they can be they can be held for longer if possible or if necessary, excuse me. But really, as I said, it's it's this high standard where you start involving, um, you know, paramedics and and uh, you know, the, um, medical services of um, of the city. It's not really a homelessness issue at that point, and and that pertains to people who aren't homeless as well. That that that's if you or me or anybody else that we know um, meets that standard of. Um, of yeah, we all have the right not to be in custody once we're stabilized. Exactly. All right. So I wanted to go back to, to Curtis and Nanette. Tell me how um, Darrell and Jimmy, what, is their, what do their, the rest of their days look like? Well, Darrell said goodbye to his family and left the homeless shelter. Fortunately, his commute was very short over to the Coalition on Homelessness, which is an advocacy for homeless people in San Francisco. The group advocates for more services for homeless people, and they lobby the folks at City Hall to have policies that are more friendly to that population. Terrell's job at the center is basically an office job. He answers the phones, he greets people who come in for help, and he helps, he helps distribute the street sheet, which is a tabloid paper that covers topics of homelessness. You've probably seeing people on the street corners selling this paper for $2. Well, the people who are selling the paper get to keep the proceeds from selling the paper. And these are homeless people who are usually selling it. It helps them pay for food or clothes or a place to stay. And Jimmy? Well, um, you know, it sounds like when I describe the inside of Jimmy's van, oh, he's living in the, the lap of uh, vehicle luxury. But the federal government says that people living in their vehicles are absolutely homeless, and there's a good reason for that. Um, you know, Jimmy uh, told me he's he's really cold at night, um, and uh, there's obviously nowhere for them to use uh, the facilities. They have to go out, so it's not a real home. And um, so he and his uh, fellow van dwellers have to find something to do all day. And so, um, as I said, they worked on their van on the day that I was there. And then um, a bunch of them got together for for dinner that night. But even to go out to dinner for somebody living in your van is a whole process. He, um, They all have to, first of all, find a place to park and and a place to park where they can stay parked. And that's a very difficult thing to do, it turns out. Um, and and they are not allowed to park on the in the parking lots of the community colleges anywhere in the state. There is a bill in the legislature that would make that legal. And all these uh, people, Jimmy and his friends, are rooting for that. But right now, they have to go around around the block, look for a place where they know they're not going to get kicked out pretty soon. And, and they wait for each other um, because they're all going to eat together. So they wait and and they um, go off to some inexpensive place to eat. They got some uh, Japanese udon the night that I was there with them. So I have a question. Yeah. They have to be, I would imagine, pretty concerned about all their belongings. 
too. They can't just like leave their vans and go off and, you know, take muni across the city. They got to stay pretty close to all their stuff. Remember, well, Evan covers the uh, break-in car break epidemic <laughs> for us as well. Uh, yeah, on, on the day that I was there, actually, there was the opposite problem. Um, and first of all, these guys don't have a lot of, I mean, they do have uh, saws and drills, actually, now that I think about it. Um, they probably got a computer or two in there. Um, but they lock up. But the opposite problem that happened was when I was there, um, there was a knock on Jimmy's van door. Turned out that one of the other van dwellers had locked his keys in his car and he couldn't get in. And uh, I think he lived in there with his wife as well, and, and she didn't have the key. So they I was had living to, there with his wife in he, a van? Well, there's more than one who, who have families living there. I didn't wow. see any children, but I saw a couple of couples. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I saw a Murphy bed in one of the. That one. <laughs> I interviewed one wife on that day, and she said that she was she couldn't believe she said yes. And a year later, she actually enjoys it. But they had to call a locksmith, and so there we were in the van waiting for a locksmith to figure out how to get into this guy's van. Wow. So they have the same kind of problems as some of us do in our houses. Wow. All right. Well, uh, I wanted to before I let you guys go ask you what you learned from the day. Um, what'd you learn about homelessness in San Francisco that maybe you didn't know? Um, what stuck out? Well, I just want to talk one minute about the finances because that was what um, characterized these guys in the band. They are there for the money, for saving the money. And I didn't know this group existed. Um, Jimmy gets $4,400 from the federal government as a GI bill a month. And so he's able to save with all the other um, federal grants for education and military disability, because these guys have PTSD and other back problems and things, $45,000 a year. And he spends so much less than that, he's got a nice bank account, and as do most of them. And so I did not know that that was a component of homelessness where um, you can actually, it's a cost of benefit analysis here. And that is going on, not with everybody, but with the group that I was with, that's what's going on. Sure. Well, for me, uh, this was an eye-opening experience um, just to see that there was no shortage of efforts and resources that are hitting the streets every single day, whether it's the Department of Public Works, the Department of um, Homelessness and Supportive Housing, Public Health, Department of Emergency Management, and this team of like, you know, more than two dozen cops that go out. Um, they know how many shelter beds are available. They know how many NAV center beds are available. They have the resources. They have the counselors available. Uh, but also with all those resources, um, just how many calls and how many people are out there on the streets of San Francisco, how many encampments and individuals is just um kind desperate of, situations in desperate situations is just pretty mind-boggling and to see this happen every single day all of these calls i mean it, i i think it, it, it's hard to imagine just not being overwhelmed by the whole scope of it if you're one of these um one of these city employees going out there and and facing this and seeing these people in these desperate situations every day Curtis? 
One of the things that this got me thinking about is just how many families in the Bay Area are not unlike Darrell and Diana's family. They may not have a lot of savings. They may be living paycheck to paycheck and um, something bad happens. In their case, Darrell lost his job. This can happen to anybody or somebody can experience a big health bill or there can be a big increase in their rent and they won't be able to afford their, their bills. And the options just aren't always good. Some people may want to downsize their home and move to something cheaper, or some people may move out of the Bay Area, or some people have the option to stay with family or friends or get a roommate. But some people just don't have options. And that was the case for Darrell and his wife. Well, I think what I learned from you guys, and thank you again for doing it, is just how complex the situation is. I mean, from veterans to families to people that are mentally ill or addicted to drugs, the situation um, is sprawling and, um, and there's a million reasons for it. And obviously there's no one solution. So Nanette Asimov, thanks for being here. Glad to be here. Evan Sarnofsky. My pleasure. And Curtis Alexander, thank you. Thank you, Damien. Thanks to our guests, Chronicle reporters Nanette Asimov, Evan Sarnofsky, and Curtis Alexander. Thanks to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. This episode was a part of the SF Homeless Project. For all of our coverage, go to sfchronicle.com homelessness. Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.